If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to be reading out of 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 18 through 24 of the third chapter of the epistle of John to the church, the first epistle of John to the church. First John, chapter 3, starting at verse 18, this is the word of our Lord. My little children, let us love in not let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given this to us. We pray that you open our eyes that we might see great things concerning you. We pray that you help me to be a clear proclaimer of the truths of your word for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You might wonder why sometimes I, I take my time, I say what the passage is, and, I'm, um, and then I wait a minute, and then I say what the passage is again. Uh, one of the things that was ingrained into me in seminary is to always wait to stop hearing the pages turning in the Bible. Now, if you want people to go to a passage, we need to give them time to, to get there. Um, so that's why uh, I, do, I do that. Sometimes I feel sorry if people are, people are trying so hard to get to that passage and you can see the desperation in their faces as, oh no, he's going to start and I'm not there yet. So I feel for you. Through the years as a preacher and as a teacher, I have learned a lesson of which John seems to be very aware. Often, those who should be most affected by a sermon or a lesson are not. And those who are already being faithful to what is being taught are unduly convicted by it. Of course, I'm not taking account the work of the Holy Spirit who uses the foolishness of the message proclaimed to change hearts. But generally speaking, this lesson stands Often those who seem to be furthest away from what's being taught are those that don't listen to it. And then those that are already faithfully following what's being taught get extra convicted, unduly convicted about what is being said. Uh, I had to, to show these, this portion of my notes to Emily 
because so she knew I wasn't copying from somebody else because John Piper said almost exactly the same thing as Together for the Gospel. But the sermon was ready before uh, I went to Together for the Gospel. So I was in, but it's good to see that I'm not the only one to have learned that lesson in, uh, in ministry. John has been hammering the idea that assurance of salvation is based on objective belief and actions, namely faith in the whole Jesus of the Bible, obedience to what God says in the Bible, and selfless love for the brethren that parallels Jesus' selfless love for us described in the Bible. And he realizes, John realizes, that there are some in the church who have truly been saved, but have an overactive conscience that will unduly condemn them. So John here is in the whole epistle, and in the epistle as a whole, but specifically in this passage, is following an old adage about preaching. Actually, it was not a preacher that first said that, but it makes sense in preaching that says that the preacher's aim is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfort comfortable. So that's my goal for today. If you're afflicted in your soul, if you're struggling with your faith, I hope you are comforted, comforted by what I have to say here today. But if you're super comfortable in where you are, if you're comfortable in your sins, I hope you find no comfort in this message. And that the Lord will stir something in your heart that will cause you to go to repentance and turn to Him and ultimately find your comfort in Him, not in your sins. Every, every Christian will at one point or another experience condemnation by his own heart, her own heart. Sometimes the accusation of the heart will be true and it must lead to, to repentance. If your conscience is accusing you of something that you're truly doing wrong or thinking wrong or believing wrong, it's, the solution is simple. You repent and you start doing, believing, thinking exactly what God tells you to but sometimes the accusation will be false. Your own conscience will bring false accusations against you, perhaps even inspired by the accuser of the, bre- the brethren himself. Now, in these times, the Christian must stand on what he knows is true concerning Christ and concerning his or her faith. That's the solution to an overactive conscience, is the objective work of Christ on your behalf. And John tells us here in verses 19 and 20 that we are to examine our heart's doubt according to the three tests of assurance that he's been given us through the book. Look at verses 19 and 20. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You see there in verse 19, it starts with the word this. And the word this in the beginning of the verse points to the preceding paragraph where John talks about our love for the brethren being the test of our faith. If you look at verses 16 through 18, John is hammering that idea. He's going to come back to that again in chapter 4, verse 7 and following. But for John, it's very important that if, a, if, if one who claims to be a Christian... and does not love the brethren, that he or she understands that he's no Christian at all. That you cannot claim to believe in Christ 
and then turn around and not love the people of God. And remember, I always say that we are very good lawyers. We are very good at justifying ourselves. And you might say, I love the people of God. I just don't love these people of God. No, John is talking to the local church. If you don't love these people, you don't love Christ either. But then John anticipates that some people who are faithfully loving the people of God will start cashing in their own, uh, their own love. And say, oh man, am I, am I really loving the people of God? And to these people, he writes this verse. John Stott, and John Stott is great in this passage, so we're going to be referring to him quite a bit as we go on. John Stott says, Love is the final objective test of our Christian profession, for true love in the sense of self-sacrifice is not natural to human beings in their fallen state. So John says that it is the mind's knowledge that we belong to the truth that silences the heart's doubts. That, that being the case then, John is calling the believer to examine his or her heart's doubt in light of the three tests that he has given them, especially the love test. Do you love the brethren? If you don't, you don't believe in Jesus. It's as simple as that in the book of 1 John. John is not complicated. John is black and white to the point that sometimes we don't like it because we love gray maybe not in our hairs but in life we love the gray but John says hey do you want assurance of salvation do you love the brethren great there's no condemnation for you in this area and that's, that's what John is saying. The presence of self-sacrificial love for the brethren is evidence of the new birth and the dwelling of the Spirit. In verse 24, he tells us that if this is true of you, the Spirit is in you. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, he says the same thing. And notice that in verse, three, in verse 20, there are three actors. There's the accuser. That's our hearts and perhaps even Satan. The defendant. That's us. And then the judge, who is God himself. And John tells us that God is greater than us, than we, and our hearts. If you look at verse 20 again, it says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This could mean two things. This idea that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things could mean two things. One, God is more merciful than our hearts. Absolutely true. God is more merciful than our hearts. God is more merciful than we could ever be. Or two, it could mean that God is more rigorous in judgment than our hearts. And though both things are true, both that God is more merciful than our hearts and that He's more rigorous, John likely means the second. God is more rigorous in judgment than our hearts. So you say, but Tito, you're saying that this would be a comfort to, my, to me? That God is a more rigorous judge than I am? And the answer is yes. God, who is infinitely more righteous than we are in judging our own hearts, has declared us to not be guilty for the sake of Christ. The punishment has been met. The most rigorous judge in existence, God himself, is satisfied with that judgment. And this knowledge comforts an overactive Conscience, the fact that God who knows all things 
who is the judge of all things, before whom all things are laid open, declares you to be not guilty of any of your sins, is great comfort. Because no matter how much your heart condemns you unduly, God is greater than your heart. And he knows all things. God has justified the believer. God has declared him to be not guilty of his, his or her sins. And, be, and he's done all that because of Christ. Christ took upon himself the guilt of those things. Again, John Stott says, So it is knowledge which alone can quieten the condemning heart. Our own knowledge of our sincere love for others and supremely God's knowledge of our thoughts and motives. Stronger than any chemical tranquilizer is trust in our own, in our all-knowing God. Now, <laughs> tranquilizers are not used as much anymore to deal with uh, anxieties or depressions and so on. But we get the point here that really you want to get out of funk, you want it to be, be to have the joy of the Lord, even in despair, is a knowledge that God knows you. The fact that God knows everything about you, including your faith in Christ, and He declares you to be innocent. Think about that. There's nothing hidden from God. You and I can hide all kinds of things from each other. We can, we can believe in a completely uh, uh, different life elsewhere. We can believe in a completely different life just internally. We can deceive people. And yet God knows everything that's in our heart. And because of our faith in Christ, He still says, not guilty. He still accepts us in the beloved. He still adopts us and makes us co-heirs with Christ of His kingdom. That thought is very comforting for those who have an overactive conscience. It's comforting for all of us, especially for those who are unduly condemning themselves and are lacking assurance of their faith. And John says that there are several blessings that flow from an uncondemning heart in verses 21 and 22. And the first blessing that flows from an uncondemning heart is that we can come before God with confidence that we will be heard. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Objectively, we can come to God anytime. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can come to to God at any time. But subjectively, we are more likely to come with confidence before Him when we are assured that we will be received. I think all of our experience is that when we are feeling condemned by God, we are less likely to go to Him. When we think that He's not going to welcome us, we are less likely to go to Him. When it feels like our prayers are falling in silent ears because we, we think that He is mad at us, we're less likely to go to Him. But John tells us that we can go to, with confidence to God because we have been saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the context of Jesus being the high priest who opens the way of the Father to the Father that the author Hebrews tells us that we are to come to God with boldness. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the Holy Spirit says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we have this high priest, the one who made a way 
possible, who, who offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, his own blood, and he's gone before, he's before the Father, and, for, and he's a sympathizing high priest, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and because of that, in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So an uncondemning heart will assure us that we are going to be received by God and we can come with confidence before Him. And that's a blessing to know that your God is going to listen to you, hear you every time you come to Him. That there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because Christ stands before Him, as we saw in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, pleading for you. Uh, we sing, we're going to sing debtors to mercy alone and in a moment, and in that hymn, it says that we are hidden in his wounds. And that's not just uh, John Newton's idea. It's actually from Isaiah that talks about the idea that we are in the palm, hidden in the palm of God's hand, and we can come to him in prayer. So that's the first blessing that flows from an uncondemning heart. We can come before God with confidence that we will be heard. And the second blessing of an uncondemning heart that follows its self-examination by the three tests of assurance is answered prayer. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We examine ourselves. We see that we are in Christ. We pray and our prayers are answered. Listen to this, but listen carefully, okay? Obedience plays a part in answered prayer. Obedience plays a part in answered prayer. Though that obedience is never meritorious. When we obey God's commandments, our wills are in harmony with His will. And, the, and so... What we ask Him is what He wants. When we obey the Word of God, we align ourselves with God. So when we ask Him, we ask Him for the very things that are in His words, in His Word. It's not an exchange. It's not that I obey and you answer. It is an alignment of purpose and desires. That's what... Obedience thus does for us. Now, we have to be careful that we don't make this verse or treat this verse as the only verse in the Bible that teaches anything about prayer. Because if you do that, we might end up with some sort of a prosperity gospel. That somehow if we claim faith in Jesus, then God is bound to have to answer anything that we ask Him. This is not even the only verse in 1 John that talks about prayer. You could go to John, 1 John 5, 14 and so on and see that there are other verses there. There are other conditions that the Bible gives us for God's granting our requests. Prayer must be in Jesus' name. Jesus himself tells us, tells us that in John 16. Prayer must be for God's glory. In James chapter 4, uh, James says, Why is it that you're not, no, your, your prayers are not being answered? It's because you're selfishly praying for your own things. The one praying must have been cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ. See that throughout the Bible. 
The one praying must be forgiven by God and willing to forgive others. Mark, uh, Jesus tells us that in Mark 11. Prayer must be in faith, believing God's promises. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. But having said all that, our obedience has a part in answer prayer. Because as we obey God, we desire the same things as He does. And we pray for the same things that He, he likes. Ultimately, the heart that obeys God in faith has no reason to condemn himself. The heart that obeys God in faith has no reason to condemn himself or herself. See that in verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Do you notice that in verse 23, John refers to one commandment? is a singular commandment with two parts. This is commandment, faith and love. Faith and love. The Lord Jesus Christ is so united with His people that faith in Him cannot be separated from love for His people. That's why John insists that a heart that has been changed by the Spirit of God because of Jesus Christ will love the body of Christ. Where are you with that? Where are you with that? Does your faith in Christ translate into tangible love for other believers? Or does your faith in Christ have no impact in the way you see other believers? Where are you with that? If you do not love the body of Christ, you do not love Christ himself. Again, black and white in the book of First John. And then in verse 24, John repeats the same concept, but with analogy of being in God and God in us. He appeals to the analogy of the vine to reflect the Christian's union with Christ and with one another. I love it. I want to read a longer passage. I love if you're willing to turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where our, G, our Lord Jesus speaks of this idea of being in God and God in us in the analogy of the vine, one of the seven I am's in the book of John I'm going to read verse 24 of 1 John 3. I know you're not there anymore. So that when we read uh, John 15, you can see the connection. 1 John 3.24 says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Remember, Remember how 1 John began? He says that, that which I, we have heard, that which we've seen, and the, the way that he says that which I've heard, he uses a tense there that, that, that communicates something that he heard in the past, and it continues to resonate in his ears. And as he's writing First John, in the back of his mind, is all the experiences he had, he had with Jesus are there. So it's very likely that as he writes First John 3.24, this passage that we're going to read now is in the back of his mind as the... As the, the 
the full explanation of this idea of being in, in him and, and, and him being in us. So John 15, starting verse 1, says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That's you, if you are in Christ. The word of God has sanctified you. Remember what he prays just two chapters later in John? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. The same language at 1 John 3.24. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's why John in 1 John says, if you have these fruits, if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, you are, if you obey the commandments of God, if you love the brethren, these are the fruits that can only be produced if you are in Christ. So if you see the fruit, it means that the root is there as well. And that's why you can be assured of your faith if these fruits are present. Verse 5, I am the vine... You are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. And this sentence is key. For without me, you can do nothing. You say, you know what, Tito? I just can't love these people. No, I can't love you. You're a hypocrite. You don't come and see me. You're mean to me. You make jokes about me. And that's true. None of us can love each other. Because without Christ, we can do nothing. It is because we are in Christ that we can love each other. That's why we are, because we are in Christ that love for one another is an evidence of that. That's why we can be assured of our faith if we have Christ-like love for one another. Because we can't do that without, without Him. And that's why all of our obedience is not meritorious. Because we can do nothing apart from Christ. Remember Philippians 12 and 13, uh, 2, 12 and 13? Work out your salvation with fear and tremble, for it is God who is working you to will and to do of his good, good pleasure. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. So, and look, I don't necessarily think this is talking about final judgment just yet. It's talking about the life of the professing Christian who is not really attached to Christ through true faith. He's in the church. The means of grace are available to him or her. And yet his faith, her faith is just withering. Because he's not savingly attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next clause is the judgment. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burnt. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Same as 1 John three twenty-three, The idea that when we obey God, our will and God's will are aligned, and what we ask Him is in accordance with His word. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, much fruit, fruit so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. How is our joy full? By knowing that we are in Christ. According to 1 John, how do we know that we are in Christ? Do we believe in the whole Jesus of the Bible? Do we obey from the heart of the things that God has given to us in His Word? Do we love the brethren? If so, then our hearts can condemn us. Verse 24 of, of 1 John 3 summarizes the first three chapters of this letter. No one can claim that he lives in Christ unless he or she believes in the whole Christ of the, the apostolic teaching, loves tangibly the brethren, lives righteously, lives in holiness, that is, lives in obedience. In conclusion, John Stott says this, Living in Christ is not a mystical experience with which anyone may claim. Its, indispens- its indispensable accompaniments are the confession of Jesus, the Son of God, come in the flesh, and a consistent life of holiness and love. What he's saying, Christian faith is not a mystical thing, abstract, amorphous, out there, is very clearly defined as what you believe concerning Jesus, and then what you do with that in the form of obedience and love. So brother, sister, if your conscience is condemning you while these things are true of you, God is greater than your conscience and He has found you not guilty. So hold on to that and inform your conscience by what God says is true of you in Christ. Now if your conscience is condemning you because you're guilty of not believing in the whole Jesus... You're guilty of not living a holy life. You're guilty of not loving the brethren. Then repent. Because at that point, there's no reason for you to be assured of your faith. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Know Him. And then be blessed by Him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we learn about Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection ascension on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would work in us these fruits that are from your spirit, that we might grow in our faith and our assurance of faith, knowing that we are in Christ. We thank you that in him we cannot be separated from your love and that we are hidden in your hand and in his hands. We thank you, Father, that those for whom he died, those for whom he died, you are not going to cast them out. And we pray that that will be true of all of us here in this room. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.